Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute, and I'm glad to be hosting this. Uh, those of you who are in the back, please, as more people come in and look desperately for a seat in the back row, please point out to them that, as usual, there are <laughs> seats available in the front row. Um, and if they want to sit down, the front row would be an excellent place uh, to look for that opportunity. Um, one of the things we used to talk about here at Cato, I would have colleagues say, sometimes we say, who is the Ludwig von Mises of our day? Who is the Milton Friedman of our day? Sometimes people would say, who is the Henry Hazlitt of our day? And we would think there is, there is no Henry Hazlitt today. And then it dawned on me that the reason that we don't think there is a Henry Hazlitt today is because, in fact, there are lots of Henry Hazlitts today. There are lots of people talking about economics in terms that normal people can understand. Probably the person who's been most successful at connecting economics to a broad audience is Stephen Levitt with Freakonomics. And a lot of people who, who have differences with that book, but certainly he uh, managed to find a lot of people uh, to read it. There are other similar books, similar in some ways, um, by Stephen Landsberg and Tim Harford and Tyler Cowen and David Friedman, not to mention P.J. O'Rourke, whose book Eat the Rich I think is an excellent first introduction to economics. It's not the last book you should read about economics, but I think if you wanted to get your 15-year-old son to start thinking about the questions of economics, that's a good place to start. And there are the daily letters to the editor from Don Boudreaux uh, that some of you may be familiar with and that were collected in a book recently. So now he's an author of such things as well. One of the problems, I think, with a lot of today's Henry Hazlitt's in the sense of people who are writing about economics in terms relevant to uh, normal readers is that they may put more of a focus on cleverness and counterintuitiveness than they do on simply conveying basic economic facts, trade-offs, incentives, costs and benefits, concentrated benefits and diffuse costs, things like that, when what we need is really economic education for voters. Those are the kinds of things normal people, average people, voters need to know rather than necessarily the clever counterintuitive uh, uh, insights that you might find in Freakonomics. We published a book here at Cato maybe 15 years ago now uh, edited by Daniel Klein called What Do Economists Contribute? And he had essays in there from James Buchanan and other very distinguished people. But his main point was to say the main thing economists contribute is helping average voters understand what's involved in policy issues. And our speaker today wrote one of those kinds of Henry Hazlitt books called Freedomnomics. He spoke about that some time ago. We do have copies of that book outside as well as the one that we're formally talking about today. Today, I think, John Lott is not here as Henry Hazlitt, but more as Cassandra, warning us of entirely foreseeable doom that many people don't seem to be listening to the warnings of. He has a new book called At the Brink, Will Obama Push Us Over the Edge? Um, I feel that 
I've known John for a long time, and I feel that I know him because we both went to Vanderbilt, although in fact, he went to Vanderbilt four years after I did, so all we had was overlapping groups of friends uh, rather than actually ever having been there at the same time, and then he didn't stay. He went on to UCLA because he desperately wanted to study at the amazing UCLA economics department of the 1970s. But he came out of UCLA with a PhD. He became both a prolific scholar, uh, a very heavily data-driven scholar, and a vigorous polemicist. He has published over 90 articles in academic journals. He's in the top 20 among economics, law, and business researchers in terms of lifetime downloads at SSRN, the Social Science uh, Research Network. But he has also, over the years, taken on controversies ranging from abolishing the property tax in Montana, which was not so popular with some of the people in charge of the state government and the State University of Montana, to the effects of gun ownership on crime, which is probably what he's best known for, his book, More Guns, Less Crime. Uh, he did, as I say, get a PhD in economics from UCLA. He held teaching and research positions at Chicago, Yale, Stanford, UCLA, and Wharton. And he was the chief economist at the United States Sentencing Commission about 20 years ago when he first developed his interest in the effects of punishment on crime. So please welcome to discuss whether we are at the brink, Professor John Lott. Thanks very much for the introduction, David. Yeah, I guess I've known David since 1976 or so, so it's been a little while. I mean, even uh, even bringing up uh, Henry Hazlett, Hazlett in connection with me, I consider an honor. It's one of the first, one of the earlier econ books that I read. I'm sure it had some influence on me. I'm not sure I'd put uh, Freakonomics in the same vein. The, uh, I mean, to me, I almost can't help but comment on this before I get into the talk here, and that is, to me, there are kind of different types of economists out there. There's those who try to figure out why the world is the way it is, and those who say this is the way the world should be. And I've kind of always thought myself as being in the former category, figuring that there's lots of really smart people out there uh, that have strong incentives to figure out what works best. But I think most of the econ profession these days think that they're smarter than most of the markets or whatever there, and they go and they say, if they see a pricing pro, you know, uh, contract that they don't understand uh, or some type of behavior by the part of a firm that maybe the businessman can't explain to them right away, they're very quick to jump and say it's inefficient, that there's some type of mistake going on there. And I think uh, Freakonomics book, kind of definitely falls into that latter, latter category. And just, you know, them talking about fraud and uh, the incentives for that all the time and uh, cheating by firms, sure, that exists. But to me, the interesting thing is how markets arrive to try to solve those problems, to try to make it costly for people to go and engage in those activities, why you have things like reputation that go and develop. And, uh, that book uh, kind of leaves out those things. Plus, it kind of bothered me that uh, much of the book is um, assertions about things rather than kind of going and explaining what I would kind of regard what's interesting in terms of the economic language. But that's me on those things. So let's, anyway, get into this book. Uh, 
I've been very concerned, obviously, as I'm sure many have been, with the way the country's going right now. And I think there's some places we're kind of at the brink, some places we're past it. Uh, I think in terms of health care, I think the writing's on the wall pretty much in terms of destruction of what's been, I would argue, and I try to show in the book, by far the best quality health care system in the world. I think there's been a lot of misinformation that's been out. Uh, you know, the president would often go and talk about life expectancies across different countries, and the United States wouldn't have the top life expectancy. But what I try to explain in the book, I don't think that's the right question to go and ask, because I think people can affect their life expectancy in many ways that you can't expect the healthcare system to overcome. Americans get into car accidents at very high rates. We're relatively obese. What the right question would be for something like that is to say, given that you're going to get sick, what country in the world would you rather get sick in? And I think uh, the evidence is overwhelming that uh, if you're going to get sick any place, the United States is the country that you want to go and get sick in. Um, but, uh, and I try to provide some evidence that, in fact, even the uninsured in the United States are pretty happy with the quality of health care that they receive. People think that just because you're uninsured, that's the same thing as meaning that people aren't going to be getting medical care, and that's simply not true. Uh, the uninsured in the United States are about as happy with the quality of health care that they receive as the people covered by government programs in Canada, for example, and the insured here are much happier. So there's, and I, and I worry that the types of changes that we have are going to destroy uh, private health insurance. I think next year, and I try to go through this in the book, but there's a wide range of issues that I think uh, Obama and uh, Democrats and Congress in general, from everybody, is leaving uh, indelible mark, changing the quality of life in our country in really bad ways. And it's in terms of the economy, I think, uh, uh, We've just seen the debate the last couple of days in terms of people's ability to go and use guns for self-defense. I think it goes beyond that uh, in terms of what's happening at the state levels and the courts. But uh, I'm mainly going to just concentrate on two areas right here, given uh, the time limits. And that is looking at what's happening with the economy first, and then looking at uh, what's happening in terms of the gun issues that are there. Uh, if you look at... Uh, what's been happening to economic growth, I'm sure a number of these points people have some familiarity with to begin with. You look at job growth. John, stay near the microphone. Okay, sorry. I'm used to kind of walking around. But anyway, uh, you look at job growth here. This is the first 44 months of the recovery that we've had in comparing it to past recoveries. Uh, the green line represents the percent change in jobs that you've had during the first 44 months of the average recovery since 1970. The blue line represents the average job growth that you've had uh, for recoveries after severe recessions. And the red line there represents the average job growth that you've had in recoveries after mild recessions. And this dark blue line or purple line down there is what we've been experiencing in our current recovery. You can see the average recovery has been over 9% growth. Right now, we're just slightly over 2%. So it's more than four times less than the average recovery that we've had in terms of job growth. Now, that seems bad, but actually it kind of understates how bad the situation is. 
Um, one way to kind of look at this is to kind of disaggregate this in terms of hires and quits. Um, this recovery has been very unusual in terms of both. Usually when you have a recession, the number of monthly hires that you have fall. Uh, but then, of course, during a recovery, they go up again. In terms of quits, you see a similar pattern. People uh, are fearful when you're in a recession to go and quit the jobs that they have because they're worried they're not going to be able to go and get another job. But particularly after long recessions that are there, you have a lot of kind of pent-up demand for people to go and move on to other jobs. They've stuck with a job that they may not have been too happy with for a long period of time. And so, and if it's a long recession, you have a lot of people who feel that. And so usually when a recovery starts, you'll have a big increase in the number of quits. Well, this is one recovery, the first one really, where we've seen both hires and quits both fall during the recovery relative to what we had during the re recession. And, uh, you can see here, this is uh, the blue line here. I don't know if I can. The blue line here is uh, monthly hires in the uh, 18 months or so prior to the recession. You could have longer periods of time. It really doesn't make much difference. It's over 5 million a month. During the recession, it fell to about 4.4 million a month. During the recovery that we've had, it's fallen to about 4.1 million a month. It's gone up a little bit to about 4.2 million in the last three months, but it's still lower than the average that we had during the recession. So the question is, well, if we're hiring even fewer people now each month than we had during the recession, how is it that we've had any job growth, really? And the way to think about this, it's kind of like water level in a pool. You have water going out. These are quits and water coming in. These are hires. If you're going to have the water level go up when you're adding less new jobs in terms of hires, the only way you can really have any increase in net jobs is if the number of people quitting falls by even more than you've had this drop in the number of hires. And that's essentially what's happened. I mean, it's really phenomenal when you think about it that the rate at which people are willing to quit their jobs now is lower during the recovery than it was during the recession. It indicates, if anything, that people may be more afraid now of what their job prospects are if they go and quit than they were during the recession that's there, which is pretty hard to get your, kind of, your mind around when you're talking about uh, a recovery. Another way of kind of looking at uh, how hard it is to get a job is to look at the ratio of the number of hires to the number of people who are unemployed and the change in the number of people who are classified as not in the labor force. And you can see, obviously, there was a big increase during uh, the recession uh, that started. But it's pretty much remained the same after that. Uh, it's gone down slightly, but it's nowhere near what it was before. We have this huge overhang of people who have, uh, uh, are unemployed or have been recently unemployed or left the labor mar market compared to the number of people who have hired. And we've, as we saw, we've had few new hires per month. Now, there's another way to kind of look at uh, the situation right now, and that is this is unique in another way in terms of GDP growth. In other uh, recessions that we've had or depressions, after you have uh, the shock that occurs, you have 
pretty much very quickly going back to the old trend line in terms of GDP growth. And you can see that with the Great Depression, it was pretty quick. The reason why I didn't go back up earlier is you had kind of this depression in a depression. We could talk about Milton Friedman's explanation for uh, uh, Roosevelt increasing uh, the reserve requirements at banks and how that caused the money supply to fall. But even with that little detour, you can see it fairly quickly, or at a fairly rapid rate. It's just that it had fallen so far. It took a while, even at a fast rate, to get back to where we were before. You can look at uh, the 1970s and 1980s. You'd have a drop. It would go back to trend. The 1980 Carter recession went down, but fairly quickly went back up to what the trend was. This is... This is the first recession that you can see that the gap between trend line and GDP growth is getting larger. I don't have the last quarter in here right now, but that was essentially flat. So this gap is still getting bigger and bigger over time. It seems like we're definitely on some new lower trend rate there than we were before, and that's quite a change from past recessions that we've had. Now, one of the reasons why I wrote this part of the book was to go and deal with a lot of the claims that are going to be made with regard to uh, uh, you know, the debt ceiling limited and the sequester debate that we just had. Uh, one of the common claims that the Obama administration keeps on making, we see it from Krugman and others, is that you can't cut spending. If you cut government spending, that's going to make the economy worse. And there's lots of ways you can look at this. I have some many comparisons in the book, but I'll just give you uh, an example or two. Um, and that is uh, just look across developed countries and to see the relationship between government spending and employment. You can break this down in different ways. Uh, I have kind of uh, lagged uh, uh, cumulative change in government spending, and then I have uh, change in employment. Uh, this is from 2007 to 2010. This is from 2006 to 2009. Krugman, when he's had graphs that have been somewhat similar, he starts in 2009, which basically misses all the big increases in government spending there. There, In fact, you know, basically you basically had in some actually fall after that who had the biggest increases up till that point. But I can do this, I have graphs where I do it year by year, but I just thought it's easy, and also run regressions with fixed effects in here. Uh, you get very significant results that indicate that, in fact, the ones that have had the biggest increases in government spending have the biggest drops in employment over time. And as I say, you can break it down year by year, and not just kind of the lag periods that we have here, and you see a very strong relationship there. You can also see it in terms of uh, government spending and GDP growth. Again, a very strong relationship. You break it down year by year, fixed year, and country effects in there, and you'll continue to get a very strong relationship. Now, <clears throat> Krugman suggests a couple things, essentially detrending this with some average growth in GDP or government uh, spending over time. And if you do that, Again, you basically get uh, a perverse relationship here. Cumulative change in government spending and um, uh, you know, his measure of austerity that you have there, you basically find that the countries that have had uh, uh, 
you know, the biggest increases in government spending have done uh, the worst in terms of their economy. And you can also look at it in terms of employment, and you get a similar type of relationship that exists there. Now, one of the um, kind of, it's almost become a Bible for the Obama administration has been uh, this research by, uh, uh, I wish we'd been able to have him here to talk about it, but Reinhard and Rogoff, and um, uh, essentially claiming that recoveries after uh, financial crises is, are much slower than they are otherwise. And so, you know, they kind of admit that there's uh, some ambiguity, some subjectiveness in terms of how they classify countries in the past. And so what I did, I just said, okay, well, let's take the classification of countries that they have in their book for the current one and just go out and see how those countries differ. One can differ and argue about how they classify countries. I'm not really trying to get into that type of debate. I just want to try to take them at their word on how they want to go and classify the countries. And so one question you can look at, I look at other ones here, but you pretty much get a similar type of pattern. Did the countries facing financial crises face worse labor market problems than those that didn't? And so you have these two sets of countries. The dotted line or dashed line are the countries that Reinhardt and Rogoff said did not face financial crises in 2007, 2008. There were 19 that they had there. And the countries that they said did face financial crises are the solid line here. If you look at what's happened after the period of time that they classified them, it's pretty hard for me to see much of a difference between the two sets of countries in terms of how they've done. I think it's more instructive when you kind of break them out. I, I hope you can see this. But um, uh, so they had... Um, if you look at the countries that they say had financial crises, the, the 10 that were there, you, I would argue you can break them down into two groups, it seems like. You can have Spain and Ireland, and then you can have the other eight countries that they classified as having a financial crisis. Spain and Ireland, obviously, were in pretty bad shape. The other eight countries that they classified as having a financial crisis have actually done fairly well. And if you look at the United States, this dark uh, dashed line, it's obviously done much worse. And, um, uh, you know, the other countries, uh, but, you know, this country, these eight financial crises countries, they've done very well. They've essentially stayed constant over time in terms of uh, their employment. Now, <clears throat> um, as I say, there are lots of other issues here uh, I'd love to go into uh, that I go into the book. But I wanted to spend a little bit of time on the impact that Obama's having on people's ability to defend themselves, particularly given the uh, kind of the news coverage on this. One of the reasons why I, I wrote the, this part of the book is uh, I knew Obama at the University of Chicago. Uh, I can't say we were friends by any means. But... Um, uh, we had a number of very short discussions uh, on different issues, and we talked about guns a little bit, and he made it very clear to me what his views were on it, and I think we're getting a little bit more of an idea of what his true views are on this. Uh, it's really amazing how intensely uh, this administration feels about the gun issue, and I'm not sure people here kind of uh, understand what's been going on. When I did uh, started the book tour for At the Brink, the first 
place I went out to was Colorado. I'd been invited out there by uh, members of the state legislature, the state house, both Democrat and Republicans. And the big news when I got out there was that the day before, uh, Vice President Biden had called up seven members of the state house and essentially promised them that if they voted the right way, uh, the president would help them campaign next year if they voted the right way on the gun control measures. If they voted the wrong way, the White House was threatening to go and uh, recruit candidates to run against these Democrats in the state house primaries this next year. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that level of intensity to get involved in state issues in terms of state house races. I don't know, maybe David's heard something like this happening before, but I haven't heard this type of thing happening in the past. And in fact, uh, the Democrats there told me that uh, uh, Biden's lobbying had gotten seven to switch their votes, which was enough to give them the up to four vote majority that they had in, uh, in some of the bills that they tried to put forward. Um, and uh, in particular, it was interesting what issues the Obama administration seemed to care most intensely about. And the one that they seemed to care most intensely about was the bill to impose taxes on the transfer of purchases of guns. Republicans had put up two amendments on that. One was to cap the tax at $35, and the Democrats voted in mass to uh, knock that down. And the other one, something that I have to confess I had a little bit of a role in, uh, was to go and uh, exempt people below the poverty level from having to go and pay the tax for obtaining a gun. And the Democrats voted against that in mass. And uh, you know, it's pretty hard to think of why the Democrats would vote against exempting people below the poverty level from having to pay a tax for obtaining guns unless they really didn't want them to go and own guns that were there. Um, you know, in any case, as an economist, you look at these types of taxes, and it's something that you see in New York's legislation, in Connecticut, and Maryland. It's going to cost like $350 at least to go and register and license a handgun with the bills that they just passed there. You know, as economists, you think, well, who benefits from these types of rules? If they really think it's going to reduce crime, as they claim, then everybody benefits, not just the people who are going and obtaining the gun. And it seems like you'd want to go and pay for it out of general revenue anyway than making those individuals pay. And um, uh, you know, it, I would argue there's an external benefit from people owning guns. If people in an area are more likely own guns, I think the evidence is pretty strong that criminals are less likely to break in while the residents are in the dwelling. And so if anything, you don't want to go and tax them for that. You may want to subsidize them, but at the very least, you're not going to want to tax them, and I'm not going to argue for subsidies on this stuff. But uh, in any case, the big move has been to impose taxes, and I think from what I've heard, in Maryland, for example, the White House got involved in uh, uh, kind of lobbying the president of the state senate there to get him to switch his position so they could get the, uh, the gun control bill through the state senate there, and they've been involved in other state legislation, too. Now. Um, I uh, kind of, when I was writing this in December, you know, the administration was starting to come out with a lot of incorrect statements. It was kind of interesting just the other day uh, at Obama's uh, Rose Garden presentation to go and attack others for misrepresenting the facts. I just mentioned a couple things here, because I can't find one number that he's mentioned in any of this gun control discussion that's right. 
And uh, I went through and looked at everything made in January 16th. Every number is wrong. I'll just give you on the background check stuff, which seems to have been the centerpiece, obviously, in the discussion. I'll just mention a couple. There's basically two types of claims. One is that 40% that of all gun purchases are conducted without a background check. And the other one is that these 2 million, uh, two million uh, dangerous people have been prevented from buying guns because of the background checks. I was actually able to get Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post to finally run uh, a fact check accurately on the, uh, on the 40% claim. But you can see the president back in, uh, well, even a week or so ago, he said as many as 40% of all gun purchases uh, take place without a background check. And you know he's made similar types of claims. This comes from a 1997 uh, survey done by the Clinton administration. And that study claimed that 36% of transfers were done without background checks, not 36% of sales. So Obama kind of rounded it from 36 to 40% and changed the word transfers to sales. But there's a huge difference. Transfers, almost all these transfers are within family inheritances and gifts. And uh, I don't think that's what most people are thinking about when the president goes and talks about 40% of sales not going through background checks there. And it's a small survey done from 91 through 94 uh, of 251 uh, purchases. There's all sorts of problems with this. I'm not going to go through too many of them. Uh, I'll just mention to you that the Federal Brady Act didn't even go into effect until February 28, 1994. And, uh, uh, you know, so most of this period, 80% of this period was done before the Brady Act went into effect. And um, uh, even that isn't too good of a representation because it's not like sales were uniform over time. People went, tried to buy lots of guns right before the Brady Act went into effect, and as soon as it went into effect, sales basically fell through the floor. Now, if you just look at sales, as the president's been saying, and kind of go and, and look at the data set there, it turns out that about 13.3% of all sales did not go through federally licensed dealers. But even that's much too high. And the reason why it's much too high is that um, you have to look at how licensed dealers have changed over time. Back in 92 and 93, we had about 284,000 licensed dealers in the United States. And uh, uh, by the end of the Clinton administration, that was down to 100,000. The big change was what we used to call so-called kitchen table type uh, dealers. These were people that would sell you know, six, seven, eight, ten guns out of their home, maybe in a month or so, or at a gun show. Um, but it's not like they had a sign in front of their home that said, I am a federally licensed firearms dealer. And you go and you talk to these guys, and I've interviewed them before, uh, they didn't think hardly anybody that was purchasing a gun from them would have any reason to know whether they were a federally licensed dealer. They just assumed that most people, if you went to a regular brick-and-mortar store, you would know that they were a federally licensed dealer. And the problem with this survey is that you're just asking these respondents whether they thought they were buying from a federally licensed dealer. And so you had a, you know, all these sales for you know, 180,000, 184,000 of, uh, of these dealers going through these so-called kitchen table type dealers. And so there's no reason to believe that 
virtually all of those sales would even be thought of as, uh, as going through licensed dealers. And of course, you take into that, it could maybe wipe out virtually all of the 13.3%. I just mentioned one other thing. Given how much the president talks about the gun show loophole, it's kind of ironic that on the one hand, he cites the survey, <coughs> and the other hand mentions the gun show loophole, because if you really believe the survey, and I don't, but if you really believe the survey, it claims that 100% of gun show sales went through federally licensed dealers. So you know it's kind of cherry picking there what parts of the survey to go and use. And I'll just mention briefly, just give you an idea, of gifted guns, 93% of gifted guns came from within families and 91% of inherited guns come from within families. So you just get an idea of these transfers, how heavily it is within families. Now I'll just quickly go through um, this, uh, uh, the two million number that's there. Um, I guess I gave the wrong thing here, but uh, more recently the president has said uh, two million dangerous people uh, had been prevented from getting guns because of background checks. And you can see his earlier claims here, too. Now, here's a problem, and that is, again, he just changes the language. You know, rather than before changing transfers to sales, in this case, the correct terminology is initial denials. So they changed the term initial denials to prohibited people prevented from buying guns. And there's a huge difference between those two. I'll just give you a simple analogy. You may remember the late Senator Ted Kennedy. There are five times he was on the no-fly list. Five times when he tried to fly on a plane, he was initially denied being able to go and fly on a plane. He later flew. But I assume no one's going to count that as five times you've stopped a terrorist from flying. But yet, assuming that just because somebody's initially denied means that there's a, they're a bad guy is what they're doing with these initial denials for firearm purchases. We can't tell exactly because the annual NICS reports are a mess, but it's clear that at least 95% of the initial denials are false positives. I would guess it's probably over 99%, but they don't give detailed numbers enough to know for sure. What you can look at is something like, uh, you know, the last year, for example, in 2010, there are about 76,000 initial denials. Uh, uh, and uh, 44 resulted in prosecution. They got 13 convictions. But you can just go through the numbers here, and you can see that about 94% uh, were dropped at the first stage as you know, overturned after review of operations or after the FBI obtained additional information, pretty much indicating that they were false positives. And even if you look at these 13 guilty pleas, this is 13 out of 76,000. None of those in this year and very few in other years are what you would call real criminals. The most egregious case that you have here is a 65-year-old man who his wife had gotten a threat. Again, this is the most egregious case. His wife had gotten threats. He tried to buy her handgun, went in, filled out the form. You're supposed to list prohibited offenses that you've had. He didn't list anything. Apparently, 45 years earlier, he had gotten into a fistfight with his brother in his front yard. Police have been called, gotten arrested, pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor domestic violence charge. And uh, he claims that when he filled out the form, he didn't realize that that was a prohibited offense. Prosecutors argued that there's no way he could have forgotten about the case and that, um, uh, and that he must have committed perjury. 
when he filled out the form, and he was convicted and sent to jail for three years. So um, I could go and talk about more of these cases, but you know, here's the bottom line you have to think about with these things, and that is, and it's something that's been missing from this debate, and that is they're both costs and benefits from these laws. Everybody wants to try to stop criminals from getting guns, but when you look at these things, they're not stopping criminals. There's two ways you can look at it, the way I just mentioned, and also the research that says, you know, maybe you made it more costly for them to get guns in some other way, and that reduced crime, but research isn't finding reductions in crime. And then you have to ask yourself, the trade-off is how many law-abiding citizens who may have really needed a gun for self-defense are we stopping? And the problem that you face there is that when you're talking about two million people being delayed for months, it may be the vast majority of them it's just an inconvenience. But when you're dealing with such a large number, you're going to run into some significant, if small, number of people who really did need a gun quickly for self-defense. And that's not the only problem. There's another 12 million people who are essentially delayed for three days. It's not like months, like in the other case. But my research basically indicates that even that short delay for, again, a small but significant number of people can make the difference between whether or not they're going to be able to go and defend themselves or not. So, I mean, just in summary for this stuff, what, I, what I've tried to do with this book is talk about the problems that we face that are coming up with the economy, with healthcare, and others. Try to anticipate some of the debates that are coming up with regard to the debt ceiling limit, for example, and go through the arguments that are there and try to provide responses for people so they know how to go and argue these things and also take on a couple of the academic debates like the Reinhoff and Rogoff. And in the case of guns, try to give people an idea of, uh, of the real cost that the push that the president's having. Because it's not just the federal rules that people focus on, it's the state. And he's already appointed the majority of the judges in this country. And um, you know, just one more change on the Supreme Court there would very likely reverse the decisions that we've won in terms of Heller and McDonald. And you have two justices of the five who voted for those things who are now in their late 70s. You know, one hopes that they make it through the next three and a half years or so. Anyway, thank you very much. I appreciate your time and uh, happy to take any questions that people have. All right, uh, we're open for questions. Let, uh, once we call on you, please wait for the microphone to come to you because we are webcasting this, and I guess we'll start right there. You know, I think this is total lunacy. Um, no one is trying to take your right to have uh, a handgun or to have possess a gun, but these 100-round clips are, they're evil, they're insane, and, and I don't know, do you have any ties whatsoever to the National Rifle Association? I've never applied for money. I've never asked for money. They've never given me money. And, uh, you know, I have no ties to them. I've been a member. And how do you feel about these 100-round clips? Well, let's go through the different points that you've just raised in order. You know, um, I know right now there's a lot of lip service in terms of saying they don't want to take away guns. But you go and you look at these taxes, for example. And the, according to the Washington Post, uh, it costs $534 for them to go, when they try to go and get a licensed and registered handgun here in the city. Who's able to go and afford to go and go through the licensing registration process to go and get a handgun? 
It's basically wealthy whites. If my research convinces me of anything, it's basically poor blacks who are most likely to be victims of violent crime who benefit the most from having the option to be able to go and defend themselves. And I think a lot of this push has been simply to go and try to use taxes and fees to accomplish what they no longer think that they can directly do through just an outright ban. Look at Massachusetts, which the White House and many gun control groups point to as kind of the model for Maryland's law and others that are going through right now. In 1998, uh, there were a, a little bit over 1.5 million legally licensed and registered gun owners in Massachusetts when the licensing and registration rules went, went into effect. Today, there's just over 200,000. In 13 years, because of the licensing and, and registration rules in Massachusetts, they've been able to go and reduce gun ownership by 86 percent in, uh, in Massachusetts. Now, you may not say, well, that's not a ban. They're not trying to take anybody's guns away. That seems like a pretty significant change that's Can right. I, you brought up two points. I'm answering your first one, and I'll get to your second one in a second, okay? So, uh, and so if you just look at the crime rates that ha ha changed in Massachusetts, in 1998, Massachusetts' murder rate was 30% below the average for its neighbors. Now it's over 30% above the average for its neighbors. And you can graph it out. You can see it's basically flat relative to its neighbors right until the new licensing and registration rules went into effect. And right after that, as gun ownership plummeted as a result of them trying to take away guns, through the registration, licensing, and tax process that they have there, you've seen a big, sharp increase in murder rates and other types of violent crime rates in Massachusetts. Now, with regard to the magazines that you have there, we've been there, we've done that, we've tried those types of limits. We had a federal law from 1994 to 2004 that limited the sale of, of magazines to 10 bullets, but it's not just federal. We've had state rules that have had just probably virtually every combination of rules that you want to have with regard to magazines. There have been a number of academic studies that both looked at the federal and the state rules that are there. No one, no criminologist, no economist in a referee journal that I know of has been able to go and find that any of those laws, whether it's state or federal, has had any impact. So the question is why? Why don't, haven't they had an impact? And there are multiple reasons for that. One, I think the simplest, is just who are you going to stop from owning these types of magazines when you go and you put a gun, a ban on it? You know, the issue that you have to deal with is, um, it, you know, whether it's a gun ban, and we've seen what happened in Washington, D.C., the huge increases in murder rates and violent crime rates that occurred after the ban went into effect here, or since 2008, when the ban's been eliminated, murder rates in D.C. have fallen by 52%. And it gets to the central point about who obeys these laws. You know, that uh, you have to be careful. If you pass a law that's primarily law-abiding good citizens who obey it and not the criminals, by disarming those individuals, you can have unintended consequences. So let's say you have a concealed carry permit holder. If you have, there's over 9.3 million concealed carry permit holders in the United States right now. If you limit magazine size, what they're just going to have one magazine. It's going to be in the gun that they're going to have. If you limit to seven bullets like they want in New York or 10 or whatever it is that you want to have, you're basically limiting the number of bullets that they're going to be able to have. These criminals that go and do these mass shootings, 
they come prepared. So one of the things in media seems to get a hundred things wrong in these stories, but just one example, you know, they kept on talking about these assault vests, like in Colorado and other places, and kept on talking about them being, you know, bulletproof. Uh, unless nylon has some new properties I didn't know about before. What makes these things assault vests is that they have lots of pockets on them. And these guys would come filled with these pockets with uh, magazines there, so they would have additional magazines. What you're doing with these types of rules is basically making it so that the people who are planning on doing these attacks are going to become relatively well prepared compared to even if you do accomplish what you want to. But the other problem is magazines, I don't know if you know this, but are like the simplest part of the gun to go and make. They're basically a box with a spring in it. And the notion that somehow you're going to stop people who want to go and get these things from getting a hold of them, you know, any, I mean, I've seen people make them in front of me. I mean, it's a trivial operation to go and put together a magazine there. So again, you have to go and ask yourself who obeys these things. But if you think that there's research out there by criminologists or economists, point it to me. Because there's been a lot of studies, even studies paid for by the Clinton administration, couldn't find the types of benefits that you're just assuming exist there. This is not a debate. Are there other questions? Right here in front. I'm very upset about people like the NRA that don't seem to understand that a right means that you don't need any stinking permission to do what you want to do. Well, uh, let me answer that this way. And that is, uh, <clears throat> to me, uh, the bottom line uh, in terms of the discussion comes down to safety. And I think what you need to think about, uh, you know, I understand uh, your arguments about rights, but you have to understand for most people in the middle of the debate, they're willing to trade off freedom for safety. And if you want to go and win the political debate here, you have to go and address that issue. If you go on TV or something and the first thing that you go and say is, I have a right to go and sell my gun to whoever I want to go and sell it to, you'll, you'll have an audience there that will applaud you, but you're going to lose the people in the middle there. I think guns are one issue where freedom and safety just happen to go together. And to me, I think you have very strong safety arguments to make there. And if, and you know, I can't tell you how to go and argue or whatever with your friends that you're going to be talking about it with. And, you know, you may want to make freedom arguments, and that's fine. But, um, but I think uh, if you want to win the debate uh, in terms of uh, influencing legislation and what have you, you have to worry about what people in the middle of the debate think about. And I, when I go and talk about this, I never talk about Second Amendment issues or what have you. It's not something that interests me, per se. And so, you know, I can understand, uh, you know, the interest that you have in it, but, and that's fine. But I'm just saying, you, you, if it were me, I would have phrased myself differently than you just phrased yourself. So, just something to think about. All right, in the second row. John, I'm uh, more worried about bubbles than I am about crime or guns, and I'm wondering, um, as an economist, if uh, you can imagine a scenario where uh, 
if the Fed, the Fed right now can, seems to be doing a very good job in controlling interest rates. Short-term interest rates, zero. Long-term interest rates, wow, are they, are they low? Well, long-term interest rates are pretty low. I mean, yeah. I look at long-term bonds, they're not. Yeah, no, no question they're, they're low. But can you imagine a scenario in which the Fed actually loses control of, these, of, the, of its suppression of these interest rates? Um, thinking, once again, because you're an economist, can, can they lose control of it? Because if they do, then, then uh, a lot of these bubbles that are going to deflate. Well, um, I mean, I'm sure Fed can always lose control out of things that they're doing. I guess I would just say, look at long-term interest rates, and investors out there seem to be pretty confident. They thought that that probability was high, then the interest rate on 10-year or longer-term bonds would be much higher than it is right now. And when you say suppression of interest rates, I think basically what's happening is people just don't want to borrow a lot to invest. And that's the reason why interest rates are as low as they are right now. Uh, you know, I just, I'm not sure it's just suppression on the part of the Federal Reserve. You look at, you know, obviously people look at the narrowest definition of money, but if you look at broader definitions in terms of checking and other things like that, you know, the money supply hasn't, uh, hasn't behaved that badly. You know, and I think the inflation rate that we have is pretty much, you know, indicates that that's the case. Uh, Michael Pento uh, mentioned that in the last four years, M2 has increased 40%. It's been a little while since I've looked at the money supply measures, but my impression was that the broader measures hadn't increased, them, you know, as much as, you know, everybody looks at the amount of currency that's printed up, and that's obviously gone up a huge amount. But that's the broad... Well, it's the base, monetary base has gone up a lot. M1, which is checking, M2, which is checking in savings. The broader measures, I didn't think, had gone up anywhere near as much as, uh, as the monetary base had gone up. Third row. Uh, in, after the fall, at the Weimar Republic, uh, after the uh, Versailles Agreement, the mark went from four dollar, four marks to a dollar to four billion, you know, in other words, inflation. Uh, we're we're print, printing, I guess, is four billion dollars a week or something. I, I'm not sure anymore. Right. But the it doesn't appear we're seeing a great deal of inflation, which I don't, which which you saw. Right. In well, Germany. again, you have two issues here. One is, uh, I think you want to look at a broader measure. Uh, you know, I'm not a macro person, generally. I mean, to me, a lot of the tax and spending stuff is just a micro issue here. But, um, uh, you know, the broader measures of money supply haven't gone up as much, and you've also had a drop in velocity, you know, the rate at which money turns over. And it's kind of the combination of the two that you care about there. Now, are there things that can go wrong in the future? Sure, things can go wrong. You know, other countries may not want to hold the U.S. as a reserve currency as much. That could cause uh, inflation to go up. Uh, all I can tell you is that, um, you know, or they can have the types of fears about changing behavior of the Fed or what have you. Well, don't, what I do in that type of situation is I basically go and look at the market, you know, and go, you know, kind of the opposite of what the Freakonomics people would have. I basically assume that the market knows what it's doing there and uh, is the best guess that we have for uh, what's going to happen. Is the, is the money, is it possible to predict 
that the money is it possible that the money that's four billion dollars a week is primarily being siphoned into the market the meaning wall street market uh in such a way that it's it's arbitrary i mean it's 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 yeah. Well, I mean, I think you'd see general prices going up if that was the case. And as you start yeah. off your comment by saying we're not seeing general prices going up. Well, food prices are going up. No, no, but but you have to look at it overall. Sure, some prices go up, other prices go down. I mean, if if kind of money supply and velocity times each other are this product is constant, right? If one price goes up, something else has to go down for the price level as a whole to remain the same, right? Right. And so, sure, there's some things that have gone up, but there are also other things, by definition, that have gone down a fair amount. Do you have an answer? Of, I mean, do you have a feeling for what the market, the stock market is doing? Is you know, again, my best guess for the stock market is what the current price is on those things. That's usually the way I look at it. Yeah. In the back. In right. Second next, to the back. row back. Yeah. Or you can call on people. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, just back to guns for a minute. I, I think there are a lot of people who perceive the freedom and safety trade-off that you posit, but worry about other consequences, accidental discharges, kids getting their hands on the guns in the sure. home, shooting their siblings, things like that. And in fact, it's kind of become trendy at uh, my kid's school for parents to recommend that other parents always ask if there are guns in the home for a play date. Right. I wondered if you could talk about the relative danger of guns in the home compared to other objects that people don't seem to worry so much about, like ladders and buckets and things of that nature. Right. I, I take this as kind of a rhetorical question that you already know my answer to this, the way you're saying it. But the look, I actually wrote a book that deals a lot with these issues. It's called The Bias Against Guns. And uh, you can go and look up data for yourself pretty easily. Uh, you can go to the Centers for Disease Control website, their mortality and morbidity reports, and they have amazingly detailed data. You can look by state, you can look at the country as a whole, you can look by year of age of kids, you can look by type of accidental death, you know, firearms. And what you find is that there are fairly few uh, accidental firearms deaths involving kids for uh, I think the most recent year out is still 2010. And if you look at it, you'll find, I think there was like 25 accidental gun deaths for kids under age 10. There are like 52 accidental gun deaths for kids under age 15 in the United States. There's 60 million kids under the age of 15 in the United States. Uh, I would argue, you know, it's pretty hard to find almost any other item that's as anywhere near as remotely commonly owned in homes as, as guns are that has as few accidental deaths. Now, in the bias against guns, one of the things I did was I, uh, I did a nexus search on each of the cases that came up in uh, the CDC reports that were there. And it's amazing. When a child dies from a gunshot, you're going to get a fair amount of news stories about it. But there are a couple things that I was able to see pretty quickly. You know, your hypothetical is the way most people think about it, and that is they think, a child will get dies from a gun by the a child getting a hold of a gun and accidentally firing it. In fact, about two thirds of the accidental deaths involving children were shots fired by an adult male, usually in their late twenties, usually somebody who had a violent criminal history. 
about half the adult males seem to be somebody who had an alcohol or drug problem, about half seem to have their driver's license suspended at the time of the accidental shooting. These were not normal people. And if you look at the period of time, I looked at a 10-year period of time from like, I, I guess it was like 91 or 92 through 2001. Um, what you found was that uh, there was about eight cases a year where a child was the person who accidentally fired the gun, uh, which is eight too many. But if you even looked at those cases, what you'd find is that uh, the accidental shootings d didn't really involve what one would call a normal home. You may remember there was one example in uh, uh, Bowling for Columbine uh, in, with Michael Moore. You know, he made it, there's a case in Michigan where you had a six-year-old firing a gun and killing another six-year-old at school. He brought in the mother, made it seem like it was a normal home life. In fact, when you go back and look at the case, I know you'll be surprised to know Michael Moore might not have accurately reflected this, but, but uh, you know, I don't want to you know, destroy too many of your illusions. But the, uh, what had happened was the mom was a drug addict. She was actually out of the kid's life uh, completely. His uncle, who ran a crack house, was taking care of the boy. And uh, one of the patrons at the crack house had apparently passed out in the living room and his gun was on the floor and the boy had picked up the gun and taken it with him to school. So it was hardly kind of the normal loving home environment that the mom, or that Michael Moore had indicated in Bowling for Columbine. And um, so, uh, uh, you know, you even look at those cases, I would argue that uh, the majority of even those eight cases a year, uh, a clear majority, were. Uh, were not normal homes. They're basically criminogenic households to begin with. But the thing is, gun lock rules or whatever aren't going to stop an adult male, uh, particularly uh, adult male violent cr criminal, uh, who's it's probably not even legal for him to own a gun to begin with, from accidentally firing his own gun. You know, the gun lock laws aren't simply going to be relevant for that type of thing. And um, uh, you know, a lot of these perceptions got started in the 1990s. The, Obama, uh, the Clinton administration at the time uh, hired a consulting firm to go and do uh, uh, focus groups to find out what types of ads would have the biggest impact on gun ownership in the home. And the one that they found was these stories about accidental deaths involving kids. And, they, and the Clinton administration put out these public service ads that literally ran something like a million times, you know, most of them late night and what have you on the radio, but they got a huge amount of coverage for those things, and it's really incredibly misleading. But I have a chapter on all that in uh, The Bias Against Guns. That lady in the back, you're closest to her. How is having a gun registry violating anybody's constitutional right to own a gun? Well, again, I'm not, I'm, I don't make these arguments based upon constitutional rights. You should, I've taught in law school, but I'm not a lawyer, and so I'm not going to try to pass myself off as that. What I will answer is um, the argument that's often brought up for it is this will help reduce crime. And in theory, there, it's plausible if a criminal goes and commits a crime with a gun and they leave a gun at the crime scene, and the gun's registered to the criminal, then you can go and trace it back to the criminal and arrest him. There's a problem, though, and that is uh, 
you look at places that have gun registries and they can't point to any crimes that they've solved as a result of gun registration. Hawaii's had gun registration for 50 years. Canada uh, just put out a report before they got rid of their long gun registry because even though they've had handgun registration since 1934 and long gun registration <laughs> since 1998, they could not identify one single crime that they've been able to solve as a result of registration. And there's a simple reason for that, and that is one, Crime guns are virtually never left at the scene. In the few cases that they are left at the scene, it's because the criminal has either been seriously wounded or killed, and so you're going to catch them anyway. And in the few cases they are left at the scene, they're never registered to the person who committed the crime. And so in 2000, uh, the Honolulu Police Department uh, put out a number indicating that they were spending 50,000 hours a year on implementing the registration process for just Honolulu. And here's the problem that you face. 50,000 hours worth of police time is a lot of time. We know police matter in terms of reducing crime. There's a lot of standard practices that police can do which we know are effective. So here's the trade-off that you face. How many crimes aren't we going to be solving because now they're doing this registration stuff rather than doing normal police work versus how many crimes were they able to solve as a result of registration? Well, they say the number of crimes they've, you're saying no, well, I'll let you have your piece in a second. But the, how many crimes did they solve? And the police themselves tell you zero. So if it was hundreds or thousands of crimes that they've been able to solve, then it seems like we'd have a debate. But if they can't identify any crimes that they've solved, then I'm not really sure what the debate is over that. So it's just a safety issue to me and I think what they do, whether you look at Maryland or other places, or DC or Chicago, the reason why they have registration and licensing is just to add another tax, just to add another difficulty to reduce the amount of, or Massachusetts, just to make it more costly for people to own guns as a way of reducing gun ownership, not as a way, so you two are in cahoots maybe, but the, uh, but uh, just as a way of uh, reducing gun ownership. They should just say, we don't want people to own guns, rather than going and imposing all these taxes and difficulties. You know, in the original law that M Maryland tried to pass, up until just a couple days before it finally passed, there was a provision in it that would have had registration occur at only one place in the state of Maryland, in Pikesville, that's four hours away from some parts in the state, three and a half hours you know, at one end, three and a half hours from the other, and they were going to require you have to go twice in person. You couldn't do it by mail. I mean, I look at that type of thing and I say, what possible rationale could you have for requiring people have to drive four hours each way to, first of all, drop off the form and then require that they'd have to come back a month or a month and a half later? And you can't wait too long, because if you wait too long, then you have to go through the registration process again to go and drive there back again. What's the point of something like that? Why would somebody even put in a provision like that unless they just wanted to make it very difficult and costly for somebody to go and get uh, a handgun? But my bottom line is that who are you stopping from owning guns? And I think it's very racist. Because what's happening when you look at Chicago, you look at Washington, DC, you look at other places that have these fees, it's wealthy whites are the only people who go and get these, are able to go and own a gun after this. And if, again, if my research convinces me of anything, it's basically poor blacks who live in high crime urban areas, the people who are most likely to be victims of violent crime, 
who benefit the most from owning guns, and they're the ones that these rules stop from getting a gun for self-protection. So you wanted to say something? Let's take two last questions from the people here in the second and third row who have had their hands up. I'll talk to you afterwards if you'd like to. Yes, on the data you gave on Massachusetts, I believe you said there was an 86% drop in right. gun ownership. Right. In, in legal guns that were registered, uh, people, licensed in the state of Massachusetts. Okay, well that was, that was part of my question. Is, is one is, does it just mean there are a lot of guns have gone, in effect, unregistered and are under the radar now, or did the... Well, obviously that's hard to tell, uh -huh. but, but, uh, but there's severe penalties, you know, like 10-year prison term and stuff like that for different provisions that you're going to be violating. And my guess is, even if I own a gun illegally now as a result of the registration, I'm going to feel somewhat constrained for using it in self-defense because I'm going to worry more than I would have otherwise. I mean, one of the big things that happened in Washington, D.C. here and I think one of the reasons why we've had this drop in, um, in uh, murder rates and violent crimes is that there were 72,000 people in 2008 who were legally licensed to own long guns in D.C. But at that point, it was a felony punishable by five years in prison for you to actually put a bullet in the chamber of a long gun or a shotgun shell in it. Overnight, with the Supreme Court decision, they essentially changed that. The Supreme Court said, look, we can say there's an individual right for you to own a gun, but if it's a felony for you to actually put a bullet in the chamber, it kind of negates that right that's there. And so overnight, you had almost a quarter of the adult population in Washington, D.C., who can now legally use their long guns for self-defense. You know, I'm not saying that some people didn't violate the law before. Some people didn't. They went to prison. I'm just saying you make something more costly, people do less of it. And and people may illegally own these guns in, uh, in, in Massachusetts, but I think it affects the rate at which they're going to use guns defensively. Okay, and right here. Uh, hello, Mr. Uh, Mr. Lott. If I can get back to economic and general freedom sure. issues, there's three writers who I greatly admire. Um, See, uh, George Orwell, Adam Smith, and Nicola Machiavelli. And since this is the 500th anniversary of the writing of The Prince, let me read a very quick quote and get your comment. Therefore, a wise prince must provide in such a way that, in whatever circumstances, the citizens will always be in need of him and his government. Then they will always be loyal to him. So you think that is still true today? And how would you implement policies to get free market you know, policies if that is still true, that people rely upon the government. Well, I mean, I think that's a lot of what's going on with the, you know, the food stamps or other types of programs that are going on. I think it's even relevant to the gun issue. I think one, is, one possible reason why people don't want individuals to be independent in terms of providing their own protection is maybe they have to feel more dependent upon the government for protection that's there. But, um, you know, I think it's, I think as an economist, I believe that people have better information about what their preferences are than the government has. They may have a lot of other types of information in terms of trade-offs that they have that the government can't possibly have. And so normally, I think people are made better off if they have those powers to go and make the decisions and the trade-offs that they face. And so whether it's in terms of education, you know, plus competition is important. And so 
Hopefully, you know, over time, as uh, you have more states that adopt vouchers for education or, you know, tax credits or whatever and have more competition there, it would be harder and harder for people to make extreme cases about bad things that are going to happen. You know, hopefully people can be more independent in terms of savings that they have, in terms of Social Security and other things. I think that would go a long way to making people feel more independent, that they don't have to worry about each election being something that's going to reduce their benefits because they have control over it themselves. But the health care, I'm sure, is part of this push to go and make people more dependent upon the government than they've been before. But I mean, I think Machiavelli's right in terms of, uh, you know, I'm not saying that people consciously push for this type of thing, but I think that's often the net effect. Okay, thank you, John Lott. The book is At the Brink. Thank you.